Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. This content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on here constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Draper Gorin Home or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments whatsoever. And uh, you can catch the recording of this episode of Blockchain Abuse on our media partners channel, Blockchain Radio, and on Draper Gorin Home's YouTube channel. Uh, and without further ado, today's topic is all about the cannabis industry. And I think we're also going to dive into the psychedelic side of things uh, with recent news and headlines of Oregon. Uh, what, what was it, Oregon, allowing it? it Josh, you're the lawyer here. What, what was the headline in Oregon? And I see Lake Oswego is in the house here with uh, Chad Martin also. Uh, <laughs> so Oregon approved in this last election a, a rather sweeping uh, legal change for a number of scheduled substances that effectively treats them as uh, a medical uh, issue as opposed to a, a criminal issue or tries to. Um, the psilocybin mushrooms in particular, and I agree with this a million percent, uh, are viewed upon as a, a clinical um, treatment really for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and treatment-resistant depression. And there's you know, a wealth of uh, lab, you know, clinical evidence on that front that has been gathered over, you know, decades, really. So um, they're moving that way. California has announced an intent to go in that direction, or at least put it on the ballot. And of course, the Canadians are uh, are a little bit ahead of us, also, although not not all the way legal there. Although certainly they've got more companies that are pushing uh, this. And while it is not investment advice, I will point out the psychedelic space has been doing very well. Uh, for, for those who have been putting uh, attention on it. Cool. So cannabis, psychedelics, all that fun stuff. Josh, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? And then Patrick, go ahead and introduce yourself as well right afterwards and kind of tell us what your role is in the blockchain space and the cannabis industry and uh, how you kind of got started where you are right now. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm Josh Lawler. <laughs> we have a law firm, uh, Zuber Lawler. We're about 40 attorneys. We're in LA, New York, Chicago, Silicon Valley, and now Phoenix as of about two months ago. Um, and we're all ex-big firm folks. Uh, I kind of grew up in kind of a large mega firm, SCAD and ARPS, doing uh, mergers and acquisitions in finance. And um, always been something of a futurist. My, my partner, Tom Zuber, decided to open uh, the new firm with two guys in a kitchen and no clients. He asked me if I'd like to go from Skadden to that environment. I told him he was out of his tree, uh, but I did recommend the first client. Uh, that was a $1,000 retainer for a deal done outside of a coffee bean and tea leaf. So you could say we've come some distance, which is kind of nice. Um, when we, when I, after I left Skadden and got to the firm, I picked up intellectual property as a practice area also, and I've always been something of a futurist. Uh, so uh, I've really had an eye on uh, many things, but blockchain amongst them since fairly early on. Uh, and for anybody who's looking for trivia, the two stupidest words that I've ever said are the words tulip bulbs, which I said to Brock Pierce and Bill Quigley in 2011. Um, we know how that worked out <laughs> for, for everybody involved. Um, so in any case, uh, ICO mania hit 2017. That's squarely in securities law world. Uh, and, you know, being already aware of blockchain, I started 
looking at things and largely stayed out of the mix for the ICOs because I was pretty sure people were going to go to jail. Um, I still am questioning that a little bit. Uh, but once uh, folks would start looking at things and understanding securities law was involved, um, I would, you know, we started picking up clients at the same time I started trading crypto and reading a lot of white papers. And it turned out that I just have a giant mental itch for the whole topic uh, and do a lot in terms of business modeling and tokenomics uh, and, you know, along with the legal and the regulatory uh, stuff as well, uh, doing a lot of work with NFTs now also. On a parallel track, and don't ask me how this happened, when we started the firm, we have a, a friend, still a client, who opened two of the earliest California dispensaries uh, in Santa Monica and Venice. And at the time, there were no attorneys who were working with any of these guys other than the criminal guys who had taken on the licensing role. So uh, he needed to get some finance work done, just a promissory note. Uh, but since we were guys who knew how to do that and we weren't constrained by being in a big firm anymore and all that kind of junk, we started doing some of that basic finance for the dispensary folks and kind of word got around. And when uh, California went rec legal, yes, Josh is a lawyer to answer buying kick token PM me. Uh, when California went, went legal, uh, we decided we'd like to be on the right side of history. Uh, and made some comments about Joseph Kennedy and how that worked out for those guys uh, and really dived in. And for a while, we were really the only high-end firm who was pushing this stuff uh, at all. Uh, and that's changed a little bit, but we're still uh, very involved and we're really the only ones who can say we've been in the space for 13 or 14 years. Um, for whatever reason on the psychedelic front, um, because it's a scheduled substance, a lot of people assume it's pretty much the same animal. Um, it's really not at all. Uh, but there are parallels, of course, and because we're involved, um, we uh, have a lot of that just coming into us. And I've been doing a lot of speaking for the Canadian Stock Exchange about psychedelics in the, can in the uh, capital markets and all those, all those types of things. So that's a very long way of saying somehow I ended up being the cannabis psychedelics blockchain guy uh, for law. Uh, and uh, it is a lot. Of fun. Cool. Nice. Thanks for being here, Patrick. Well, Josh, it's all very impressive. Let's see if I, hopefully I can meet some of those standards. Uh, so I actually also started off as a corporate lawyer at a big firm called Wilson Sonsini based here in Palo Alto. And a few years ago, um, you know, I have this, uh, similar to Josh probably, this intellectual itch, or actually let's call it a extreme adversity to stupidity. So <laughs> what I mean by that is um, I had friends in cannabis, they're growing, and they're telling me they can't get bank accounts. And so what I realized was like, well, wait a minute, I know banks that do this. Why aren't they doing this? And why aren't more banks doing this? And the deeper I went down the rabbit hole, the more I realized that it's not about purely just legalization. It's really about, can we create an environment where the regulators, the bank lawyers, the, the, the compliance groups, can everyone get comfortable with the data and an audit trail fundamentally? And so at Athena Pay, what we did is we created a software to work with cannabis companies so that we can build an audit trail, very clearly a very basic use case for blockchain and keep our overseers very, shall we say, satisfied. Because fundamentally, we just wanna make sure we're complying with federal law, FinCEN guidelines, and all the little idiosyncratic issues that every bank has, because Although all banks, I thought when I first came to this industry, all banks were the same. 
turns out every bank is different. And every time there's a change of, of staff, rules change. And so it's very hard for the cannabis industry to stay on top of that. But the good news is that we stay on top of it on behalf of our clients. So what this means is that if we can get the right data set and we can actually show and prove to ourselves and prove to the bank and their lawyers and their regulators that we're not money laundering fundamentally, then we're allowed to bring the cash to the Federal Reserve and bring it in, convert it to electronic money or receive electronic money on behalf of our clients. And so we've came at this through a hyper transparent uh, approach, which is again, a very clear use case for blockchain. I will say that when we first started this, there were a lot of people who were uh, using, for example, cryptocurrency to solve this. And I'll tell you that the way to piss off a regulator very quickly is to combine cannabis and crypto. So we always make it very clear, we're not a crypto firm, we are a blockchain firm because we are very happy to share the data and show really, has there been a change in the data? You know, what, where's the data coming from? How can we audit it very quickly and easily? So uh, what we did though, is in addition to our technology, we actually did register as a money service business. So because we touch the money, we as a firm also have first level responsibility to make sure just like a bank does to not money launder. So we're doing our own suspicious activity reports. We do all the filings, uh, we act and do everything in conjunction with our bank. So at a high level, it's all about compliance. And that's where, again, blockchain is perfect. So actually take me more through that data that you collect. Like what, what kind of data are you actually collecting and presenting to these regulators, lawmakers, um, and all the important people that you're working with? So it starts at a high level with financial data. So we want to see how is a cannabis firm generating money, right? Because if there is, um, so I'll give you an example. There are a lot of folks who have, and Josh is probably familiar with this, they have legacy cash. They have cash that was generated prior to 2018, before recreational cannabis was legalized in California. Well, guess what? That legacy cash needs to stay out of the banking system. That just, it will not be allowed to come in. So since we've been in business, we've been offered over $700 million in cash, which is a lot of money, but money we can't ever touch. So give you a sense. So if someone comes to us and says, oh, we do a million a month, right? And suddenly they want to drop off $10 million. Something is out of whack. That's a very basic one, right? But we also look at uh, things like the metric data, which is a seed to sale program that California has adopted. And that's really a product tracking uh, mechanism where you can follow physical inventory from the actual planting of the seed all the way to the point where it's been used for oil or some sort of other extract to the you know, inclusion as part of a product, all the way to the sale to retail level. Mm -hmm. So we can see all that. And what we do is we create our own uh, data graph to make sure that we're following things properly. And, and just to make sure that if there are any changes uh, that we can actually observe those changes. Uh, you know, because what happens is that a lot of times, well, not a lot, the people who really wanna game the system, I think Josh knows this, what you can do is you can actually change the metric data. There is a way to do it, people don't, always know how to do it. But if you're an engineer, you can figure it out. Well, the problem is if you set your metric data to let's say 100, right? Maybe 100 kilograms. And later on you change it to a thousand. At the time that the bank reviews the transaction, they may not know it. They might not know the change. They just see the old, the old um, input. And then once it's changed, um, 
then that actually frees up the, the, uh, the cannabis firm, for example, to create more waste, which will allow more, um, more cannabis to be sold out the back door, for example, to generate more cash. So um, it's basically what we're doing is we're collecting and, and cross-validating financial data with product data at a high level. Got you. And making that whole entire process more transparent. To, okay, got you. Super, super interesting stuff. So I kind of want to, I want to talk about more of the, the product development side of cannabis and even psychedelics, right? Because Patrick, you were talking uh, all these touch points, right? From, from growing the seed to harvesting the seed to, to taking out whatever the leaves and, and trimming them and et cetera, et cetera, right? How do you actually ensure product quality and product transparency, right? Because obviously you record every single one of these touch points, right? And, and, and whether it be on a private blockchain or a public blockchain, typically private, if I'm not mistaken, would it be a private blockchain? Okay. How do you ensure that the product is, isn't actually being tampered with uh, on the other end, right? Because you're actually having humans at the end of the day manage these products, distribute them. So how can you ensure that they're actually not being tampered with? Right. You know, look, I'll give you our opinion, but I'd also love to hear Josh's as well. Yeah. I mean, what we're only good for is for the data we receive. So we're looking at the lab tests that go through the system. So as the lab is reviewing, for example, flour, or they're reviewing the gummies, or they're reviewing whatever they are, that's all we can see. And, and the best that we can do is track um, the lot numbers as they're going through metric. And so if there's a problem, really that's going to be between the buyer and seller, ultimately be with the distributor probably and the retailer. Um, and there's not a lot that we can do with respect to um, you know, quality. What we can do really is we're doing the anti-mine laundering to make sure that they're not swapping out product and trying to sell something they shouldn't be selling or selling in a quantity that doesn't make sense. So if they're, for example, there are a lot of techniques to what we call invert or divert uh, money which will essentially allow, you know, allow all these cannabis producers, as Josh knows, is that they're under extreme financial pressure because of all the taxes. And so there's a huge incentive for them to uh, actually bring in, uh, you know, dark money into the system. So we're really on the forefront of trying to prevent that. So we're really not on the quality assurance side as much. But Josh, I'd love to hear your opinion. Josh, I, I see you nodding your head a lot. I kind of want to hear your take on I'm doing, that. I'm doing a lot of head nodding. You know, Patrick and I have not met before tonight, I don't think. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, I really feel like we're, we're very much in mind meld mode here in terms of transparency. And, you know, from where I look at it, really following the spirit of the law on, you know, all of these different fronts, because the regulators are in many cases extremely mixed up and in some cases even hopeless. And we're going to have to drag them kicking and screaming into the right way to do things. And the only way to really do that is to like be a little bit, you know, snow white pure in terms of not hurting anybody. Um, so, you know, that's, that's great stuff to hear. Um, you know, <laughs> I get a very different view process-wise uh, along different spots. So, you know, the, the question about authenticity of product and supply chain is, you know, a, a very complicated one with a lot of different answers. Um, you know, on the one hand, I love seed to sale, but what nobody really talks about is where did the seed come from, which cracks me up because they're not supposed to cross state borders, but of course they do. Otherwise, strains couldn't be grown in place to place. And I mentioned that because one of the biggest problems that the product companies have is trying to get a consistent experience 
for their product, no matter where you are. So, you know, to draw it out, if you open a can of Coca-Cola anywhere in the world, you're pretty sure you know what you're going to get as far as what that can of Coca-Cola is, what it tastes like, what it looks like, all that other kind of stuff. Hopefully you didn't get a mouse in the bottle, but beyond that, you're pretty sure. Um, on the cannabis front, um, it, it's not even close to that. Um, there's kind of very wide uh, divergence in terms of how strong something might be, what the dosage might be, what the terpene mix might be, all those other types of things. So, you know, in addition to, you know, the THC uh, active ingredient, which can't cross borders, there is a lot of attention put on other things that can cross borders, uh, along with packaging, to kind of make sure that there's some level of quality control. Now, against that, um, in terms of verifying authenticity and definitely a blockchain use case, um, is, you know, labeling uh, that is tied to, you know, authenticity on a per unit basis. and. Um, somebody mentioned, yeah, Ryan uh, Cooper mentioned RFID chips on marijuana packaging. Um, you know, one of our clients is VeChain. They've got a, a great solution for this type of thing. Um, Chroma, uh, who's been working with Ease, has got, you know, another one. And th that's going to become pretty much standard pretty quickly, I think. You're, you're not going to actually have any packaged goods that don't have their own unique identifier. To uh, <laughs> okay, right. sorry, I'm laughing at the chat with uh, Ryan. Yeah, we we like you. Uh, but um, you know, you're you're not going to have any of the stuff that doesn't have an identifier, so that you can verify its authenticity. And you know, the the black market angle of it um, is you know, it's a real it's a real threat to that you know Snow White pure transparency that we were talking about. Um, so you know, low hanging fruit for for a blockchain use case. Um, there are a lot of different blockchain use cases in the space. So kind of take me through more. So what are, what are some of the most popular ones that you see brewing uh, right now? What, ha what has failed? What has succeeded? And, and who's doing it right? Okay, well, what has failed, and Patrick can certainly attest to this, <laughs> payment processing. Um, oh, there's, a, there's a litany of them. Yeah. And um, I'll tell you where we started from, because I think there's a starting point does spit out the right answer. So when people try to use, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, for example. Paragon. For, Paragon. Oh, my God. Yes. Paragon. There's a litany of them, right? Which one? See, Which one is it? Paragon. Paragon. They, they, um, was there a class action lawsuit against them? Yeah, well, they Paragon, Paragon had the distinction of being one of the first SEC consent decrees. Uh, that came out. So that's that's those guys. <laughs> yeah, that smelled bad from the beginning. Um, so look, the issue for uh, any cultivator, for example, right? Just talk about a grower in Humboldt County. What do they want? They want to be able to use the money, right? So if they can't use the money, it's no good to them. So giving them something crypto is just as good as them giving them in gold or whatever. They just can't get it to a bank and exchange it. So just so you guys know, I'll give you a little uh, little uh, story about the kind of issue we face. So we get calls every once in a while from from Bitcoin ATM companies, and they're asking us, "Hey, can we uh, help them? You know, convert their Bitcoin to fiat, right?" Mm -hmm. And the problem is that we can't do the audit trail all the way to the source, and so that same issue applies when we go to, let's say, for if, if we're trying to uh, convert cryptocurrency like Potcoin or Paragon, whoever it is for a um, for a, a grower one issue is that the valuation is fluctuating fluctuating at all times so 
what they sold it for is not necessarily when they get it out because the timing is not instantaneous. Well, if it's instantaneous, you've sort of defeated the purpose of why you need a, a coin. It only is good for the grower if it's like going up in value, but no one can guarantee that, right? So ultimately, it's about who can off-ramp that back into fiat. Well, the core question about offloading, off-ramping that, it's about anti-mine laundering. We need to know where it started from. We need to see the entire history of that. And a lot of times, what they have just isn't good enough, you know, in terms of the audit trail of where the money came from, who was the original, like, original coin source, you know, who was the original source of that money. And unfortunately, uh, that makes it a lot harder for a participant in the e-commerce system to be able to easily um, pull that money back into fiat so they can use it for taxes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, to add to that, um, <laughs> couldn't agree more, but, you know, to add to that, one of the things about cannabis is there is a tax every step of the way. You know, you've got a cultivator tax, you've got a manufacturer tax, you've got a distributor tax, you've got all these excise taxes. So, you know, the, the off-ramp point is a, really, is a really good one because literally every single time you've got the product going from one to another, you're, you're, you're going to need to have an off-ramp for your, your crypto to get it to fiat so you can pay that particular tax. And, you know, that, that's extremely uh, in, inconvenient, impractical, whatever you want to call it. And if all it was was one time, then, you know, the exchanges are now pretty good globally about doing KYC. They weren't always, but there's still some, some places you can go, some of the DEXs and things like that, where you might be able to exchange some stuff. And you're not going to pass muster for Patrick. Uh, and you're probably not going to be able to dodge like chain analysis or somebody of that nature. But you probably could get to fiat if you really, really wanted to. Uh, not that I'm recommending that, not legal advice. Uh, but it's just not the world we live in. There's each step has a tax. It's just like nobody's going to be able to do it. Even if you can do it technically, you can't really do it. So how would that look like more on the federal level now? So now we have the Moore Act uh, being kind of reviewed by what is it, the House of Representatives this week, if not today, tomorrow. Right? How, how would that kind of look like? And let's, say, let's say that gets passed. So a couple questions. If that gets passed, what, what's like the outcome of that right now? What, what's I don't, I don't think it changes what we just discussed okay. at all. Um, you know, for one thing, all these taxes we're talking about are state law taxes. But even beyond that, you know, the, that act is not going to touch cryptocurrency or make it any different in terms of when you have to file a suspicious activity report. So that, that I don't think is going to make any any real difference um, where I do think it'll make a difference is taking away the demand for cryptocurrency in the first place. Uh, Cause now, you know, fiat's bankable and the whole thing can run the normal way things normally run, which, you know, and, and Patrick, I'd be interested in your experience, but from our experience, there's already plenty of financial institutions that have gone down the road and, and are okay with it. We represent a couple of them. I'm sure they'd rather be nameless uh, at this point. Um, but, you know, no, nobody's blind to the size of the industry and what's developed. Yeah. So let me go back a moment to address sort of the sort of the basic fundamentals of cannabis, because yeah. I think, um, you know, at one level, what people have a hard time understanding is that just recently a friend of mine was telling me that she is a manufacturer of, you know, cannabis products. She met the distributor and the retailer in the same room. And they exchanged north of $150,000 between the three of them because of the tax issue, right? And it was all in cash. And the, re the reason was because basically 
two out of three of them didn't have a legitimate bank account. And she also told me that if she doesn't sit in the room with them, automatically she can write off 10%. And the odds of her getting her money is 50%. So she has to be in the room to get the money. That's insane. So just, we're, we're at a level of, uh, the industry is at a level where I think most people have a hard time understanding uh, how far back cannabis is. And so introducing cryptocurrency, blockchain, all this stuff is very um, tricky for a lot of people in the industry because they're not there yet. They don't understand what all that means and what the benefits are. You got to get them through uh, step by step through the evolution of, of a proper financial industry. Mm. Now, I will say Josh is probably working with a lot of great companies. And I think the great companies do get access to bank accounts. Mm -hmm. But as Josh also knows, um, you've probably seen this, a lot of people are using, shall we call it DBAs. They're trying to, <laughs> the bank. they're using management companies. They're using all these different things that when a bank will look through this, they'll look through it all. They go to a natural person and they want to see what is actually happening. And if they don't, guess what? And this goes to uh, Ezra, Ezra's point here, um, I think, which is that once you're not being transparent with your bank and you're committing some level of bank fraud, you're in a lot of trouble. That's fundamentally what's happening. And what the bank does is rather than do the investigation and realize, oh, this is not a big deal. I get what you're doing. They just boot you out. There's, there's no point with them fighting with the regulator to keep one account. Mm -hmm. Unless they've set up a cannabis program, there's just not, it's just not worth it to them. Yeah. So we've seen lots of uh, cannabis companies at cannabis banks get booted out because they haven't delivered their quarterly financials in a timely fashion. And so it's like, nope, we, don't, we can't do the review, you're out. So we are on the service side. So we are really on the, um, we're trying to work with our cannabis companies to make sure they're always in compliance with us. So therefore they can be, um, we all can be compliant with um, the bank and yeah. what they need. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really rough on them. But so, ultimately, I would say probably in my, sorry, my world, I think Josh, maybe you can disagree, but I think one out of 10 maybe have a legitimate bank account of the people we've seen. That that have, it, it, it's been a long time since we've been asked to take cash or sequentially numbered money orders, uh, which okay. nothing we were ever going to do, of course. Yeah. Um, you're right that we do have maybe a little bit of a better class of client. Uh, we work with a lot of the largest brands in the state, a lot of MSOs, a lot of funds, all that type of stuff. Um, and it certainly wasn't always that way back in the, the day. Um, but, you know, we have some clients that have had issues with banks also. And I'll tell you, I mean, two things that we've seen that are just brutal. Um, one of them uh, with the, the dark money that Patrick's talking about comes on, you know, an M&A exit because, you know, the... <laughs> The target wants to get credit for the fact that their financial, you know, metrics have been whatever they are, top line, bottom line, but their tax return doesn't say that that's what it's been because they can't declare it as taxes. So, you know, you get this really odd uh, situation that I don't, I don't think I've seen actually in any other business where, you know, all sides know what really happened. It's, you know, it's not a secret to anybody, but they can't necessarily do anything about it. The, the money is not suddenly going to get legitimate. Um, you know, you get some very strange earnout kind of scenarios. But, you know, one of the things that we, we really counsel people is like, you got to be able to pay your taxes, whatever else you're doing, you have to be able to pay your taxes, because if you don't, your future is just, you know, totally 
whacked. But how, right? How, how do you go through that oh, process? That's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the funny thing about tax is that, you know, illegal activity generates tax. and You, you have to pay your tax on your illegal activity. Right. Um, you know, if you don't have a bank account, you know, I, I think Patrick would have better ideas than I have. I've, I've heard of people literally driving armored trucks up <laughs> to, to, to deposit. Um, you know, but it, it has to it has to happen. And, you know, that might be one of the reasons why our Congress might you know, get our ourselves some some banking uh, services, because, frankly, it makes it a pain in the butt for them to collect money uh, not to have it. Um, the other thing that we've seen is a lot of people who, when doing the DBA thing or the individual thing, have really screwed themselves from a personal liability standpoint. Um, because, you know, there is bank fraud. Uh, fraud is the F word, uh, you know, that, that cuts through any limited liability entity thing. And, you know, we've had clients who try to explain to the IRS how, you know, there were several different accounts and, None of them counted, and oh, some money disappeared from one of them. Go figure. I mean, it's just it's it's a mess. Um, so you know, yeah, it's a big deal. Oh, there is no legit way. There is no standard cut way. It, it's it's the it's basically going and beating around the bush is what you're saying. Yeah, you know, honestly, this is one of the reasons I like the industry is it leaves a lot of room for creativity on the lawyer front. Um, so we can come up with some harebrained scheme to, to try to figure out how to legally do something, right. um, but it's what it is. Well, well, you know, also, I think the, the other side of it too, is that when you've got these, uh, you know, these tax payments that are out there and you've got people who are struggling to pay them, but want to pay them, but then they're also declaring like, really, let's go, let's put it this way. So Josh, you know, I'm going to defer to you on this, but I've been told that the 280E, if people don't know what 280E is, it's basically what Josh is referring to under the Internal Revenue Code, you're only allowed to deduct the cost of goods sold against revenue for, um, for your illegal activity. So you can, that's all, but you can't deduct any other sort of standard deductions. So therefore, when you actually add it all up, I've been told this is roughly a 10% tax just off the top. No, it's worse. I can do it. Is that, is it worse than 10%? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It depends where you are business wise, but think of yourself if you're a dispensary, you know, right. every product you buy is illegal. So, you know, you can't deduct your expenses from any of that. You're, you're basically paying tax on your gross instead of on your, on your net, uh, which is, is crazy. Uh, you know, the, the further back you go, the cultivation's got a little bit less of an issue. Manufacturing's kind of in the middle. Um, but the other thing that's happened here is there's been some really amazing, you know, legal action in terms of different ways that people try to avoid this by bleeding money out of the, you know, the, the licensed company. Um, and, uh, you know, that in itself is, you know, it's another thing where there's a, a lot of very fine lines that, that we're walking. Um, because there's no choice. And my bigger point too is that because of this, we've actually seen a lot of really first-class CFOs from very great firms come and try to enter this business. But because they have to sign a tax return, they don't do it. They quit. Because they have to either audit their cash every month, which is always going – somehow they always lose 5%. Someone's walking out with wads of money because they, they can't control it all the time. And then also you've got these double books – so who's going to put their name on the tax return, right? And so rather than deal with that, they, they bail. 
So it's a really tough situation for the cannabis industry, um, but it is a uh, it's it's the uh, the business we're in. Otherwise, you know why why be in it, right? There's yeah. there's, there's got to be a reason. Yeah, and, and just to go back on the MORE Act, just because it's mm-hmm. one of the most relevant things happening right now. So will that kind of alter that whole entire process? I'm not I I didn't go in depth into the MORE Act. I, I feel like Josh, you have more of a, a hand around this. So that will kind of alter that whole entire process, right? Hey Josh, do you want to summarize for the for the people yeah. on the you know in the group here, like high level, the more act? I mean, all right. So high high level, the idea here is that it, it doesn't deschedule, but it's basically an instruction, the same way the Cole memo is an instruction that you know the federal government is not going to pursue enforcement against banks that operate in the industry in states where it is legal to do so via state law. I mean, that, that's effectively what you're talking about, and that is a big deal. Uh, because, you know, what the banks have really been worried about is being brought up on RICO charges, um, which, you know, absolutely makes sense because it's a criminal enterprise from a federal standpoint. So, you know, this thing that was designed for the mob is is out there and, and RICO is unbelievably nasty uh, to get entangled in. Not to mention the fact that they're all, you know, federally chartered uh, and FDIC compliant, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it changes the whole game. Um, and as I mentioned, our firm's working with a few more mainstream banks um, with, you know, an idea that uh, as this stuff happens, they're going to want to be in the space because it's an extremely lucrative space. There's, you know, a lot of cash. At the same time, I'm sure there are some uh, credit unions and things like that who are currently in the space that are dreading it because they're not going to be able to charge the same kind of fees that they used to. Uh, so, but, but yeah, it, it's a major paradigm shift to answer your question, Adam. Okay. And, so, and, you know, I'll take a slightly different opinion to judge so we can have a healthy, uh, you know, healthy. Uh, I'm going to tell you why I'm always ready for a healthy. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our our take on this and this is, you know, with our bank partners and what how we sort of sat down, we look at, you know, sort of the fundamentals of it. So let's say um, I don't I, you know, I've been hearing maybe Josh may knew differently, but I've been hearing that the feds are going to want their tax. So no matter what happens, like they're going to either get through 280E or they're going to do some sort of federal excise tax. Then you add up all the tax at the state, county, city level, right? And now what you got is you've got a massive difference between the fair market value of a fully taxed cannabis product versus the black market. It can be 40 to 50% different. Well, guess what? When you have that kind of tax pressure, then you've got a problem with uh, these cannabis uh, companies who are really struggling to make money and have now have a big incentive not to, for example, destroy a product that didn't pass the lab test, right? When a lot goes down, when a lot is rejected, they're required to destroy it and certify that. Well, they're happy to write, write that letter up, but do they really do it? Or do they leave it on the back porch and someone combined just drop off a bag of money, right, for their leftover product? So we don't know, right? We don't know. Um, the point is that all these banks are nervous about not having the proper compliance procedures in place to review all that. So all the stuff, the MORE Act, uh, the States Act, the Safe Banking Act, all this stuff really, I think, um, are baby steps, but don't, are not gonna, it's not going to open the door to a ton of banks, but I think a few banks that were on the fence will come into the business, but they're still, these banks are still going to be uh, subject to um, concentration issues meaning that they're not allowed to have too many high-risk clients nor have too many deposits. 
that are from high risk deposits. Yeah. I mean, that's our what do you think, Josh? So, I mean, I think that's absolutely right at a certain level. Um, but, you know, what do you say about a bank that's dealing with a loan to a private equity group that's purchasing portfolio companies in the space? You know, that's something where the more hacked actually will make a, a gigantic difference in, in a lot of what we see. And, and again, you know, it, it's higher level. It's not the, the dollar that's going to purchase the product at the dispensary, but it is a big deal because it makes a, a level of capital formation that's not otherwise available possible, um, which is really what drives the industry uh, in general. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I think it's going to be a very big, a very big difference. Um, in, in terms of, you know, the the question about the, you know, generally speaking, if something fails a, a test, the first thing I hear is that they take it to a different lab to test it again. Uh, but, um, for, for yeah, that, no, that's, that's, we've heard that too. They, yeah. they, they do get different answers. Uh, but, you know, the, the folks that, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody's doing that. I don't hear about it from our guys. Um, we tend to work with the, the larger brands and such, and they're just not going to risk things by, by playing that kind of a game. Um, so, you know, sure it happens, but not, not going to focus. I, I will say we get back to the blockchain use case um, where, you know, if you've got the stuff tagged in a way that is very difficult, nothing's impossible, but very difficult to, you know, scramble, then, you know, you have less of an opportunity to leave it on the back porch and show up and have, you know, a lot of money sitting there instead at some point in time. Um, I also think, you know, with respect to the, the taxes and the black market thing, we, um, our firm really spearheaded a move against uh, weed maps that ultimately had them stop listing black market dispensaries. And we were literally a day from filing a class action lawsuit against them. And, you know, what you're going to see is a combination of adjustment of expectation by the various taxing authorities to realize that, hey, there's federal, state, county, and local, and they all want a bigger bite than they should have. Um, and then the, so they'll, they'll figure that out. And the other piece is there will be a crank down on the black market products to take that off the street as far as a, a competitive, uh, you know, differential, you know, uh, competitor. Um, one thing that happened last year that was very interesting was, you know, the, the issue with vapes. Um, and there were a lot of products where, uh, you know, it, it was not a licensed product. In some cases, they were counterfeit products and you had people dying. And for a moment that you know, we represent Central Coast Agriculture, they make raw gardens with the biggest bait company in the state. And trust me when I say there was a little bit of angst over what was going to happen and whether Gavin Newsom was going to put something down that just made it illegal, period. And, you know, lo and behold, they tested things out and they found it was something to do with the materials used in the delivery mechanisms. And, you know, that had the opposite effect. Now, all of a sudden, the authentic product which people can say, okay, this is, you know, this is regulated, people are doing this correctly, um, became more valuable, um, which, you know, happens when your other choice is possible death. Uh, so, you know, it, it all, it'll work its way through. All this stuff works its way through sooner or later. Oh, I totally agree. I, I think that the overall, the transition has been from black to gray to white market. And I think that's a, gaining more momentum. Mm -hmm. And so it hopefully will become less of a problem. Just people wanting to 
even consider doing things illegally. I, I think that's right. And, and it's one of the best arguments for descheduling. Uh, honestly, you get back to the thing I was mentioning before about consistency of product. And, you know, think about it from the Coca-Cola example. You know, you, you've got a choice of a few different soft drinks that you can drink. And one of them is, you know, the kind of mystery cola that's, you know, in some kind of mystery can with mystery labeling. And, you know, and then you've got, you know, a Coca-Cola next to it. And, you know, how cheap does that mystery thing have to be before you're willing to go after that on a relative basis? I mean, you know, now add to the fact that it's a psychoactive substance. And now how cheap does it have to be? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I just think this stuff will will get worked out of the system. And you know, one of the things about descheduling is as soon as that happens, you're going to see, you know, mainstream large companies, you know, Nestle will probably jump in. We don't represent Nestle, and I don't know that, so don't hold that against me. <laughs> but I, I could see it easily. You know, the tobacco companies certainly are, are chomping at the bit. Um, and, you know, most of them have moved heavily into alcohol in the first place. Uh, obviously, Constellation did their deal with Canopy Growth, so that's sitting there waiting to happen. It just changes the entire game so much. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so I've read an article, again, not saying it's the truth, but what I heard is that that if Biden wants to, to schedule, he might take it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, and then it'll fall under the regime of the FDA. So, Josh, do you have any thoughts on that, like what, what that means? Because I think it's not the scheduling where you can buy it off the rack at Safeway, right, mm -hmm. for you know, the local grocer, but... Being under FDA um, mandate changes the food and beverage piece of it quite a bit in terms of the consumption. If it's treated like tobacco products, you know, all sorts of, it's a new sense of um, uncertainty for the industry. Uh, but I'm wondering what you think, because I, I, you know, I don't know what to think. I'm just going, oh my God, like, what does that mean? I, well, you know. I, I, I'm going to start with shameless plug, because that was a beautiful lead in for me. We have a, a PhD pharmacologist uh, lawyer in our New York office named Dr. Jayashri Mitra, who specializes in FDA applications, along with patent litigation for pharmaceutical companies. And we've been uh, kind of waiting for the FDA to jump in for a year and a half now, uh, because yeah, we we think it's definitely going that way, especially with the CBD products off hemp right now, um, and getting you know grass that's uh, uh, generally recognized as safe designations, and also the ability to actually put medical claims on your labeling. Uh, and for anybody who is watching, the FDA sent like 15 warning letters out last year on one day to a bunch of you know CBD product companies that were putting, you know, makes you sleep better, you know, whatever it was, different stuff, anti-inflammatory, can't say that. Um, so, so it's definitely, it's definitely going to go there. Um, it, you know, in terms of, um, you know, whether that's going to be required of everything, um, I'm not sure. You've got a funny situation in that, you know, CBD is already on the market in a non-regulated way and it's already been declared not a drug and mm -hmm. that puts the fda in a very funny situation and we're not sure exactly how they're gonna how they're gonna resolve that um but what i can say we're looking at as a virtual certainty is that safeway and cvs and walgreens and costco etc and so forth are not going to put stuff on the shelves that isn't fda approved they're just not going to put stuff up without a grass designation. There's no way to uh, see that happening. There's too, too, much, too much risk and too much bad publicity. And besides that, they're going to probably come up with their own generic brands of stuff, which will have a grass designation. And that's what they're 
you're going to be able to Trader Joe's branded <laughs> spliff joint, yeah. whatever it may be. <laughs> two, two bucks on. Yeah, exactly. Super interesting. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see how this plays out. I want to kind of jump into the QA section. Uh, this one comes from Pierre. Uh, he's in Ottawa, Canada. He says, I live five minutes from Canopy Growth in Hexo. Question, what has investments by big companies, Constellation into Canopy, for instance, uh, done to accelerate blockchain adoption in the cannabis, in the cannabis space? Josh, I'll let you take that one. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. It's hard. I know not a damn thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I know nothing specific uh, okay. on, on that. Um, you know, the, the Canopy deal I absolutely love because they've got a global alcohol distribution chain. And as soon as things are ready for it, they're going to be able to launch product through that, you know, extremely fast. Um, but, um, yeah, from a blockchain perspective, don't know. With Hexo, I expect absolutely nothing just because that company has had other things to keep its eyes on and is not nearly as cash rich. Uh, but I couldn't say for, for Canopy. Okay. Next question comes from Chad Martin. Are there recruiters working with companies in this blockchain and cannabis space? They all focused. I'm not too sure what recruiters mean. Are you guys, are you guys picking up on that? I mean, as I guess people looking for a job. Is, that, I would is, expect. That, is it from a job perspective? Well, <laughs> well are you yeah. guys hiring? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are recruiters in both spaces. I mean, that, yeah. that's certain. Yeah, I think from what we're seeing, I mean, the at least the blockchain side, there just doesn't seem to be. I mean, there are a few companies that are software based that are doing something related to blockchain and cannabis, but we're not talking about you know, thousands of job openings. They're like 10, you know, it, a recruiter's really not going to get that involved, yeah. I think, on that side of it. And, and by the way, I would also argue that cannabis and blockchain, like we're not on the cutting edge. We're not trying to be on the cutting edge. We're trying to be a very solid use case yep. and be very easy for the um, regulators to understand what we're doing. So they know that our, our audit trail is very clean and very easy to audit, right? So they don't need to hire a forensic accountant to come see our books that's really the, the goal and so um, i think the true folks who are in blockchain engineering right they're looking to push the edge right that's not i think what's needed for the cannabis industry right now we're already pushing the edge right because we're doing a lot of stuff that is very um you know can be slammed down pretty hard i know when before we entered the business we talked to a lot of friends and a couple got leaned on pretty hard by the u.s attorney Mm -hmm. Right. And they were told you better shut down or you will go to jail. And they made it very clear and they, they weren't joking. So it is um, a very um, like, I think the big banks are, are protected, right? They've got lots of lawyers and working with regulators. But anyone who's trying to innovate in the space has to be very careful about what lines they are willing to uh, go up against because my recommendation is don't, don't get too close to the edge. Yeah. I, I think that that's particularly true in payments. Um, you know, which is where, where Patrick is, you know, I, I think that supply chain, uh, as we were talking about before, for example, has got a little bit more room for people to, to wiggle, to be innovative, um, because, you know, again, that, that becomes about accuracy and transparency and, you know, blockchain is a spectacular technology and I'm happy to chat about that for five days if anybody wants to listen to me. Uh, so, 
you know, there, there's more space, but payments are sensitive. And it, it goes back to what Patrick was saying at the beginning. It's just there's so much fear about money laundering, so much fear about illegal activity. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> the regulators are kind of spooked from both directions, from both the blockchain direction and a cannabis direction. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, jumping jumping into the COVID side of things now, how has COVID impacted the cannabis space, psychedelics space, and also your own individual businesses? I'm willing to go first in this one, Josh, yeah. if you like. I, I, you know, we're seeing uh, actually a lot of folks making more money than they did last year. They're actually doing really well. And what we're also seeing, though, is that uh, through some of the, unfortunately, some of the riots and other things like that, people, um, they were robbed. You know, and there was it was a lot of chaos and they lost a lot of money. So there's a big push to try to uh, electronify, if you will, make electronic their money in some way. And that's where we're stepping in and helping. But, um, you know, in, when we look at uh, some of our initiatives, I'll tell you, we're actually deeply involved in the social equity side. So these are folks from the you know black and brown communities who are not able to even get a license. But once they do, they get a special one in their social equity for you know, for the underrepresented uh, communities. And so what we realize is that distributors have a hard time actually paying them because they can't get bank accounts. So we're really trying to help make that process more smooth because the faster that they can get their money, the faster they can spend it and turn it over to uh, make more product. So um, anyway, so we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, increase in revenue from our clients, but we're also seeing more risks as well. Okay, Josh. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that what I'm seeing is any different than what the rest of the country is seeing in a lot of different aspects of things. Um, COVID hasn't slowed our practice down whatsoever. Um, you know, if anything, we're more efficient than we were before because uh, we've been forced to be in, you know, a lot of stuff we thought we needed, we didn't actually need, it turns out. Um, and, you know, there, there's almost a level of COVID guilt, to be honest, because, uh, it, you know, we shouldn't be having it as well as we have it. Uh, quite honestly, um, as far as the, the cannabis industry goes, um, I think maybe it's affecting some of the cultivators in the sense that a lot of their employees are, you know, very susceptible because uh, they tend to, to congregate, if you will, um, you know, not as much in cannabis, but other agriculture, the migrant farm workers are an especially vulnerable population based on the way they travel and the way they, they tend to be sheltered um housing wise sheltered not metaphorically speaking um so you know that that's going to have some level of an effect um, obviously you know dispensaries delivery is very big now <laughs> it's good good time to be ease um but you know the dispensaries are still moving things are still going products are still developing the MSOs are still applying for licenses. Three states just went, you know, legal as far as recreational goes. Um, another shameless plug, we're helping to write the statutes in Arizona for that. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that's all moving. It, it, you know, it, the momentum behind the cannabis industry at this point is not stopping anytime soon. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not going to have one of these pauses for adoption, the way virtual reality and blockchain has in the disillusionment phase. Like, no, that, that, that's done. Um, companies are moving and even if they're not making money, they're moving to gain market share. And there's like a serious promise that they will, 
you know, get get money very quickly uh, out of that. And, you know, the stock market's going nuts again, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so, you know, COVID hasn't really stood in the way of that. From the blockchain perspective, DeFi's rocking out for whatever you want to call DeFi. It's obviously, it's almost like saying that math is rocking out. It's such a variable term, but, um, you know, that that's that's very hot. I think that there is a lot lost in terms of not being able to have the in-person events in the in the crypto world that maybe isn't hitting the cannabis world quite as hard. Um, you know, from that perspective, things I think are a little little bit slower than they have been. Um, NFTs will be interesting. We're, we're focusing on those quite a bit, um, and NFTs I think have an ability to be a real bridge to the mainstream population. Um, we still have to figure out the, the fiat crypto on off ramp issue. Um, and, you know, the, the user experiences are still abysmal for anybody who's not, you know, in this space, go to OpenSea, try to figure out how to try to figure out how wax works. Uh, and I love Bill Quigley. I really do. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, but that said, NFTs are great because they're not crypto and they're going to appeal to major companies that have major intellectual property. I mean, period, end of story, that will push it through uh, as a use case. Love it. Actually, next week's topic, NFTs, uh, rareables, and, and whatnot. So we're going to have a lot of cool people on there for next week. But anyways, that's all the time we have for today. Josh, Patrick, you guys killed it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being here uh, and spending uh, an evening with us on blockchain and booze. Uh, before I let you guys go, why don't you go ahead and tell us where we can find you, your companies, and kind of just learn more about what you're working on. Josh, why don't you go first? Have the honor. Sure. Uh, so I am a <laughs> few places, but Zuber Lawler is our firm. You can get me at jlawler at zuberlawler.com. Very creative, I know. Um, I am occasionally on Twitter as jlawlercal uh, and also uh, available on LinkedIn. I'm happy to uh, discuss uh, any of these items with uh, anybody who's within the space, certainly. Cool. Great. And uh, first of all, Adam, thanks for having us. This is a great conversation. Uh, you guys can find me. Uh, our website is athena-pay.com. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Athena Pay. Um, and just email is probably the easiest way to get to me. It's patrick at athena-pay.com. And uh, happy to chat more. Cool guys. And before we break off, uh, the most exciting part for me now is the whole networking session that happens. Uh, and in just a couple seconds, I'm going to end this presentation mode and we're all going to be distributed to these colorful tables where we'll be able to bounce from seat to seat and meet people from everywhere on the world that are watching and joining us live right now. But in order to do so, everybody that's watching, make sure you have your mics on, make sure you have your cameras on. Otherwise you're going to be incredibly confused. Okay. So, Mic's on, camera's on. We'll see you next week when we discuss NFTs. Patrick and Josh, thank you so much. Uh, and that's all we have for today. Thank you. Right, thanks, thanks, everybody. Yeah. This has been a production of Industry Pods in association with Evergreen Podcasts Network. Hear this and other industry pods at evergreenpodcasts.com, your favorite podcast app, or listen at industrypods.com for your number one virtual conference podcast experience.